All right, so welcome to part five of our series and we're doing at Covenants. For the last four weeks, we've been talking about covenants, talking about God's big plan to bless us, God's big plan to move in our life, God's big plan to get us from our place to where we need to go. In covenants, we see this theme all through the Old Testament. And so we've been talking about God's covenant, even starting in the Garden of Eden and how God continues to develop covenant through the birth of Jesus Christ. And, and the whole theme of covenants is this beautiful theme where we see God's com- compassion. We see God's passionate commitment to each and every one of us. We see a God who's consumed, very concerned with the marginalized, a God who's concerned with the broken, that a God who's concerned with people that are lost, and a God who wants to step into people's situation and to lead them to the place that he has for them. Over and over again, we see a God who actively pursues people, and then we come to covenants. Because in a covenant, which is someone described it as God's love story to us, he comes in and says, this is who I am. Over and over again in covenants, God makes it clear, this is who I am, this is who you are, this is what I want to do for you, and this is how you need to respond to me. And it's beautiful that the God of the universe would speak to us and to show us his clear plan that he has for us. It's a beautiful story that God seeks people who can do absolutely nothing about their own situation and says, I'm going to have a plan for you. But I have to admit it, when I talk covenants, we've been talking about covenants, as as much as I like talking about covenants, I find studying covenants actually brings out this, this, maybe this little selfish part of me. Maybe brings out of this part of me who expects who maybe expects God to do everything and I expect myself not to have to do anything. Now, that was a confusing thing I just said, so let me unpack that a little bit. See, what's beautiful about covenants is God comes in and says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And then that part about covenants where God says, this is how you need to respond, I think sometimes it's easy to forget how I respond to God or what my part is in covenants. See, over and over again, God makes these big, grandiose promises all about what he's going to do for you. And then kind of in the little writing, he talks about the whole idea of repentance or sin or forgiveness or mercy. And I think it's sometimes easy for me to get so caught up in what God is doing that I forget my part of repentance that comes into this covenant that God has with us. So I want to talk some today about covenant but also about that role of repentance, that role about coming before God with your sins and asking him to forgive you, but also to cleanse you. We're talking about King David today. And David is the covenant that God made with David. And you remember the last series we did, it's called Who Am I? And we talked a lot about 2 Samuel 7, where God gives his covenant to David. So we did that series for about five weeks. So I'm not going to go deep into that covenant because we talked a lot about that. Instead, I want to highlight a little bit about what David's life was like and why God chose to work a covenant through David when he could have picked somebody else. See, the beautiful thing about David is that he understood that God had a plan to lead him in a path of righteousness. David is a character that is known for massive highs and massive lows. Sinful behavior is kind of part of association with David. But David understood the fact that God wanted to lead him in a path of righteousness. Some of you probably remember Psalm 23. It's probably one of the most popular psalms in the Bible. 
In Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is David talking about God. Talking about the good shepherd. See, David was a shepherd boy, so one of the first things that David understood is what it's like to be a sheep. And sheep are not known for being the wisest animals. They're known for being a little bit difficult to work with. And David starts out by saying, the Lord is my shepherd because I understand what it's like to be a sheep. But then one of those powerful sentences is in verse 3 where he says, he leads me in, his, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For his name's sake. I'll be honest with you, I've read this scripture hundreds of times and sometimes I forget that part of for his name's sake. Again, like I said, I can kind of get more concerned of what God's going to do in my life that I forget this part of why is God doing it for his name's sake. What does that mean, God's doing it for his name's sake? See, that little sentence carries a lot of meaning, can carries a lot of power and a lot of different uh, implications for our life. See, one of the, re the, the definitions for his name's sake is God is saying that I am going to protect the integrity and the honor and the glory of my name. That God is really careful to protect his name because it's the power of the name of Jesus that actually brings forth covenants. It's the power of the name of Jesus that brings forth healing. It's the power of the name of God that drives covenant because it's based on God's reputation. Covenants is a promise. And what good of a, is a promise if the name of the person that's giving the promise lacks integrity. So what God is saying in this word is he's saying, I am going to do things for you and I'm going to back it up with the power and with the integrity and the authority of my name. And God wants to make sure that his name is protected because his name is powerful. See, the name of Jesus and the name of God is very powerful because, number one, his name is his, 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 name is his identity. Over and over again, we talk about all the names of God and about the names of Jesus all through the Bible and the power that they carry in our life. God's going to protect his name because it proves who he is. But see, God wants to go even further to protect his name because he wants each of us to be able to use his name as his ambassadors. God gives us the ability to use the name of Jesus when we pray, when we minister, when we speak his word to other people. God has a vested interest in protecting his name for his integrity, but also because we use that as his ambassadors, as children. In Galatians 4, verse 7, in the New Testament, there's a passage that says, For you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. In other words, to say it is God has brought you into his family. Another way to say it is God has given you the ability to use his name. See, God doesn't want any of us just to be his slaves. He wants us to be his children. He wants to be part of his family. Now, when you read this passage in Galatians, I think sometimes we don't fully understand what this passage means because we don't understand what it means to be a slave. See, the way that the, our, our country used slavery in the 16th and 17th and 18th, 19th century was 
pure evil. There was nothing good or redemptive that came out of slavery in America that was wrong from the beginning to the end. But slavery back in the days of Jesus had a different meaning. It had a different connotation. It had a different perspective. So sometimes when we read slavery in the New Testament, I think sometimes we miss what it really means because we think of slavery as something so terrible and so wrong and so hideous like it was in America. We fail to really understand what it meant back in the New Testament days. See, in the New Testament days, a slavery almost was like an employment contract. It was a little bit more, it resembled more of an independent contractor agreement than it would slavery that it was in America in the 18th and 19th century. See, back in the days of Jesus, and some of it was even the Old Testament culture, you could sell yourself as a slave to a master, but actually it would be for your own benefit. Or perhaps you had accumulated a lot of debts in your family and you no longer could manage your debts. You might find a master and say to him, hey, you know, I've accumulated all these debts, but I have these skills and ability." Now, if I came to work for you for a certain amount of period of time, would you pay off my debts and let me work for you and then negotiate some kind of wage? So slavery wasn't always this bad deal. Usually people in the New Testament culture, you'd enter into slavery because you wanted to. You wanted a way to get rid of your debts. And part of becoming a slave is you work for a master and you would actually live in their house. You'd be part of the family, but you would be more like extended family. You wouldn't actually have all the rights and privileges of being a family member. So that's what it's like. You would be a slave. You would trade in your debts to the master. And in return, you would get some benefits. And so in this passage here, it says you are no longer a slave, but God's child. See, Jesus didn't just come to pay for your debts to live, let you live in the house, but Jesus wants you to be a child. Because the problem between a slave and a master was when the master dies, the contract's over. See, when you become a child, you become part of the family. You become part of an heir, and it's an eternal contract. And that's what the passage is wanting us to see. That's why the name of Jesus is so powerful. The name of God is so powerful because when a slave worked for a master, they could not negotiate. They could not use the name of the master to negotiate or to do business dealings in town. You only could send a child to negotiate on behalf of the master. So it's very important for the master to have children because they could be his representatives to use his name to do business within the city. And this is the kind of picture that the the New Testament is trying to help us to understand, is that God wants us to be part of the family for eternal life. And he wants us to be comfortable using his name to be his ambassadors and representatives outside of the home. And he wants us to understand that forever we will be part of the family. But see, that name is powerful. Because family members could use the name of the master. And God wants to protect the integrity of his name. He wants to protect the value of his name because he has to protect his honor. So God is going to allow us to use his name, but we see in the Bible, we understand our vulnerability that sometimes we are going to miss the mark or we are going to sin. So God in his grace gives us the gift of repentance to allow us always to have that good relationship with the master, even if we maybe have done something 
that hasn't used his name properly. And so we have our journey began talking about covenants back in the Garden of Eden where we talked about how God had called Adam and Eve to be his first kings or priests or his ambassadors in the garden. He set them up with this beautiful deal, this beautiful place to live, and he told them, this is who I am, this is who you are, this is what you're going to do for me, and here's the requirement. We know what happened in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned. And it started the cycle of sin and started the, the, the human nature that would be sinful from that point on. But even back in the garden, God was gracious. Even though Adam and Eve did not use his name properly and sinned against him, God still had a plan of redemption. And we see that carried on through the covenant with Moses. And in the covenant with Moses, God recognizes in the covenant with Moses that God shows that he has compassion. He recognizes that us people are vulnerable and that we, uh, we're going to sin. But God says, yeah, I'm going to extend compassion to you. And then we go to the covenant with Abraham that we talked about a couple weeks ago where God says, I'm going to continue to show grace and mercy. So what God does with Abraham is that he says, makes three promises to him. He says, Abraham, number one, you're going to have a huge family. You're going to inherit a promised piece of land in Canaan. And third, that I'm going to bless the entire world through you. So God makes these three promises with Abraham. And then we go on, and last week we talked about his covenant with Moses. See, the Moses covenant kind of is a little bit different because now comes in what we call the Old Testament law. Many of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments. We need to follow those, but also there's about 600 other laws that were given on daily living and, and, and obedience and sacrifice and how that would work. But in the middle of God giving his Ten Commandments and the other laws to the nation of Israel, God makes five distinct promises. And it's, there's promises, but there also can be looked at is ways that people would live and ways that people would respond to God. And the first one is God says to the nation of Israel, which is his chosen people in the Old Testament, is that you're going to be my special treasure. That God says, I select you out of the entire world and I'm going to choose to bless you. I'm going to focus on you and I'm going to focus on my relationship with you. Because number two, I want you to be a kingdom of priest. It's another word way to say, I want you to be my representatives. And priests in the Old Testament were people that had a very, very intimate relationship with God. And God points that out in the Moses Covenant. I want you to have an intimate relationship with me. And we see it's only through covenant that you can have an intimate relationship with God. And the third thing that God points out to Israel, he wants them to be a holy nation. He wants them to be a holy nation that would follow him. So in return, other people outside of Israel would say, wow, that's very impressive how Israel relates to their God. And I'm so impressed with that that I want to be part of that nation. And the fourth thing is that God would protect Israel from all of their enemies. And the fifth thing is that God would show grace and mercy to Israel. It wasn't that God would just show grace and mercy, but that God would always offer a plan of repentance and a plan of forgiveness. It's interesting when you look at the covenants, the part of repentance and the part of forgiveness is not as much highlighted as what God says he's going to do for you. When you read about the covenants, you see God so boldly telling about what he wants to do. And I think it's sometimes because the Bible tells us that the kindness of God leads us to repentance, that God wants to understand, help us to understand what he wants to do for us so much that sometimes that's such a bold print and then sometimes the, the, the part about repentance is maybe sometimes not as obvious to us. And I think that's been for me even studying these covenants 
as I can just so see what God wants to do for me, I sometimes fail to see how do I react to them. So we're going to continue today, and I want to talk a little bit about God's covenant with David. But before I want to talk about God's covenant with David, I want to talk about the, the king who was king before David, and that was Saul. Many of you know that Saul was the very first king of Israel, and then David was the second king of Israel. And God chose to make his covenant through David. And I think the question that we sometimes have is, why not Saul? Why didn't God establish a covenant with Saul? Saul was the first king. There's a few different reasons that we could talk about why God didn't, didn't choose his, to do a covenant with Saul. But there's several different reasons. But I wanted to highlight two of the reasons why God actually got to the point where he rejected Saul as king. God actually got to the point because of Saul's continual disobedience and his unwillingness to repent and his unwillingness to get right with God that actually Saul was rejected by God and God removed him from being a king instead replaced David to be the king of Israel. Tom Schreider, who's an Old Testament scholar, talks about two of the main reasons he's boiled it down to why God rejected Saul. And I know there's probably many more, because if you know the history of Saul, yeah, he, he, he did a lot of bad things, but it'd probably take a whole message to talk about him. So I want to talk about two that this uh, professor comes. And the first reason he said that God rejected Saul was because when Saul was commissioned to be king, God told him to annihilate the Amalekites who was a persistent enemy of the nation of Israel. God told him to get rid of that, the Amalekites, and Saul didn't do it. He refused to do what God called him to do. Instead, Saul kind of made excuses for not getting rid of the Amalekites, and we see that the Amalekites continued to pester the nation of Israel continually for the next several generations. So number one is Saul was disobedient to God, but also he lied about destroying the Malachites. And the second thing that uh, Saul did that was very offensive to God is that uh, uh, Saul participated in, in what would be called as a, as a fortune teller. That uh, Saul went to a fortune teller, a person to find out what his future was. And all through the Bible, necromancy is referred to as this, this kind of a divin, divination that people would participate in the Old Testament was strictly prohibited. There was actually no tolerance at all for divination in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And that's something that Saul did. He consulted somebody like that to f try to figure out what his future was. And see, God didn't want him to do that because God wanted Saul to go to God to find out what his future was. He didn't have to go to the path of divination. And so the hard reality with King Saul is that it was actually his disobedience that prevented him from experiencing God's repentance and God's forgiveness because Saul never would get right with God. So it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, God rejects Saul to be the carrier of the covenant, but yet he allows David to be the carrier of the covenant. And as I said earlier, David was known for a lot of sinful things. David didn't have this awesome track record of 100% obedience. So you kind of wonder, how did Saul, why did Saul get rejected and how did David get away with it? 
So I want to talk about that a little bit today. What is it about David that allowed God to bless him and God to continue to move in David's life to build a covenant? And also David would be known through generations as the great, great, great grandfather of Jesus Christ. Why did God show David so much grace? See, I think it's comforting when you compare side by side Saul and David because you recognize quickly that God is not requiring perfection from anyone. God knows that perfection is too high of a standard and that none of us would be able to attain it. So what God offers each of us is grace and mercy and justice and a path to forgiveness and repentance. And today, actually, we're going to be taking communion today. And one of the names of communion, we talk about the table. You come to the table, and quite often it's referred to as a table of repentance. It's a Hebrew word of sola that refers to coming to a table to repent. And in exchange, finding redemption and finding forgiveness. So as this message today is leading us to this path of repentance, but also leading us to a table where we remember the new covenant that Jesus made with his death and resurrection. And that's where we're moving forward to today is a reminder of the role that repentance has in our life and the seriousness that repentance has in our life, but also just think the reminder of how easy it is to forget that we sin. I think sometimes for me, sometimes sin is just like, whoops. And I forget the amount that I need to actually go to God and repent for my sins to receive his forgiveness, but also to restore my relationship. And so I just want to focus on that today as we continue to talk about David, because I think it's just easy to lose that in our culture, the importance of actually coming before God and saying, yeah, I really did something wrong. Even if it's just an attitude, or if it's just something that's really, maybe nobody else knows. But it's that constant reminder of going before God in humility and say, yeah, I did something, or I'm thinking something, and I need to repent, because that's not how you want me to live. But not just to repent, but ask God for the strength to turn the other direction and start living a different way. But with His grace and his forgiveness to empower us to live how we're supposed to do. That's the beautiful thing about coming to the table of repentance is when you come to the table, God is quick to forgive and he's quick to reconcile. And then he's quick to forget what you've done as a way of saying, go and sin no more. I think it's a powerful thing that we get to do today, that we get to be reminded of what this is all about. Be reminded of why Christ died. And to be reminded about what his death and resurrection does for us. And I don't want us to just do this so out of routine because, you know, we try to do communion once a month. And yeah, I think sometimes we just get in a routine of doing it that we forget the preparation to come to the table is actually repentance. See, in the Old Testament culture, this, this table of repentance was called sola. It's a Hebrew word that meant a table of reconciliation. In the Old, Old Testament culture and New Testament culture around the times of Jesus, if you had a big disagreement 
with maybe you had a disagreement with one family, maybe had disagreement with another family, or maybe one person with another person, and you couldn't resolve your differences, they would say, okay, let's go to the table called sola. And it's this word that meant a table of reconciliation. And so let's sit down at a table together, and let's have a big meal together, and a meal to get to know each other and to talk to each other and to fellowship with each other and to break bread with each other for, for the sake of relationship. But also when he came to a table of Sola, you would come to settle any grievances. And so maybe I had a grievance against somebody else and then we would talk that out. And one of the purposes of this table of Sola was that the, the guilty person would come to would come to the person they need to repent for. And during a meal, the guilty person would, ex- would extend uh, the repentance and say, I'm sorry for what I've done. And then the person that they were repenting to would say, okay, I understand. And I'm going to forgive you for what you've done. And then if there had to be any negotiation of, of, to payment of the debt, that would happen at that meal table as well. And then ever after everybody was reconciled, the person that was sinned against would promise to forgive the other person, but to also forget that it ever happened. And that was the whole picture that when Jesus instituted this whole thing about coming to this table of Passover, the people at that time in the culture, they had that in their mind, that I come to this table and I bring my sins, I bring what I have done wrong, and I bring it to the person I've sinned against, and I tell that person I'm sorry for what I have done. And the person that you've done it against would absorb your sins and forgive you and then promise that they would forget it, that they wouldn't hold it against you. And that's that beautiful illustration that we see of we get to come to the table today to bring our sins or bring our bad attitude or maybe a struggle or whatever that we're dealing with. We get to come forward. And then when Jesus, uh, when Jesus did the first... Uh, the, the Passover meal the night before he, he was crucified, he extended to people. He said, remember, this is the new covenant. And we're going to talk more about the new covenant last week. I'm getting, next week, I'm getting ahead of myself. But I just want us to talk about what we are doing here today is to focus on repentance and to focus on coming before Jesus and saying, I have sinned against you, God. And Jesus is in the middle to take care of our sin. And then God says he will forgive us. And then he will remember no more what we've done against him. That's what we're going to do today in a little while. We're still going to get there. So again, what is so special about David? Why does David seem to get a pass on sins? We're going to talk a little bit more about that. See, one of the things that you probably, if you study David a little bit, you're going to hear the term, David is a man after God's own heart. It's kind of a popular phrase that we talk about in the Bible, and we, kinda, we hear it in 1 Samuel 13, where it says this, For now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has, sought out a man, Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already anointed him to be the leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's commands. So this is God talking about David, who's going to be the next king. And I think we look at this and we say, wow, David. A man after God's own heart. He must be a pretty impressive person. And we think David is probably way up here and the rest of us are way down here and we could maybe hope we could be like David someday, but we probably think, well, I probably never could. So why even try? So what made David so, so special that he was called a man after God's own heart? What did he do to deserve that title? 
I love John Walton. He's an Old Testament professor at Wheaton College. And John Walton says basically David did nothing to deserve that title. This is what he says. He says, when we look at this Hebrew phrase of a man after God's own heart, we will find that it points us in a different interpretive direction. Rather than indicating David's spirituality, it indicates the fact that David meets God's criteria for kingship. He is simply God's choice. Saul was a people's choice. David is God's choice. Why is David a man after God's own heart? Because he was God's choice. And see, that's a beautiful thing. When David became God's choice, he became a man after God's own heart. Kind of levels it right there. Each and every one of us can be men and women and children after God's own heart in the same way that David was because when God chooses you to do something, he prepares you and he equips you and he gives you the skills and he gives you the ability that suddenly you become a person after God's own heart. And that's the beautiful thing. All of us can leave here today with that confidence that we can be people like David, a person after God's own heart, simply because it's the power of God working in our life. We're not going to discount at all that David did have humility and David did have piety and all the good things that David did, but what David did was a response to what God was doing in his life. So I just think that's encouraging. We can all leave here today saying we're people with a heart after God because of the work that God's going to do in our heart. So, what was it about David's character that separated him so much from King Saul? If Saul got in trouble for his sins and David sinned, why did God not reject David like he did Saul? I want to focus on four main things that separate David from King Saul. Number one thing about David is that he had absolute faith in God. David was a man that had good faith and remembered God. We all know the story about David and Goliath. Here David's a young teenage boy. Stands in front of this big giant. All of the nation of Israel is scared of this giant. And David stands up in front of that king, or in front of Goliath, with a slingshot and five stones. And what does David say? Facing adversity and facing death. David says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear would deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David had that much faith to stand in front of a giant and say, I'm going to be fine. Why did David have so much faith? Because, see, David remembered the faithfulness that God had in his entire life. See, David was a shepherd boy. David used to work taking care of sheep. And what comes after sheep? Lions and bears. And David, time and time again in his youth, saw God protecting him from lions and bears. So when David is standing in front of a Goliath, it's like, what's he going to do? See, David didn't have so much extra faith, but I think what David was remembered is the faithfulness of God to get him through so many situations time and time again. And I think that's the beautiful part about David. He simply remembered God's faithfulness throughout his life. I think sometimes it's easy, well, maybe it's easy for me, to kind of forget God's faithfulness last week and last year and 10 years ago. David was good. Standing in front of a giant, instead of saying, oh no, where am I going to run? He said, remember what God did to me last year and the year before. The second thing that we see of David is that he absolutely loved God's law. David loved the Bible. He 
He liked the Old Testament. He liked the, he liked the, the, the Ten Commandments. He liked the law. How do we know he did? In Psalm 119, David says, How I delight in your commands, how I love them. I honor and love your commands. I meditate on your decrees. That's a pretty beautiful thing for David to say. God, I love your commandments, and I'm going to meditate on them. Meditate, I think, is an art sometimes we, we forget. It's something I'm trying to practice a little bit more, where meditate in the Old Testament culture meant you just read certain chunks of Scripture, maybe a little bit at a time, and you just keep reading it and reading it and reading it, maybe till you understand a little bit more. And that's what David's saying. David's, I think he's, this is what I think he's saying. I like to sit down with your Old Testament law, and I like to read it. And I like it to speak to me. Because I recognize when I read your commands how much you love me. Because you're giving me this to follow because you want to protect me. And that's what David's saying, the second characteristic of David. The third thing is David was truly thankful. David's life was eventful. Yeah, he did sin, but David also uh, was, uh, Saul wanted to kill David for most of David's early life. So David knew what it was like to be hunted down by someone. Dave could, David could have turned out to be a bitter guy, but he didn't. Instead, David is known as a guy of thanksgiving. I think uh, of, of the Psalms, they, they credit David for writing over half of them. In Psalm 100, it says, David writes, Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. This is how David lived his life, that when he would go before God, he would go out of a celebration that he would go with thanksgiving, he would go after praise. But the fourth characteristic of David, and I think is what really sets him apart, is that after he sinned, David was truly repentant. David did sin, and he did some big sins. But David knew what it was like to not only admit his sins, but to repent for his sins. I think sometimes admitting and repenting, we forget to blend them together. David had the ability to recognize his own sins, but then he would go before God. And a great illustration is that in 2 Samuel 12, I don't think I put this in your notes, David said to Nathan, David confessed it to one of his friends, he said, uh, I've sinned against the Lord. David went to one of his friends and he admitted his sin against God in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, if you want to write that down. David went to his friends and he, he repented for his sin. But then the same sin that we read in Psalm 51, verse 1 and 2, it's one of David's uh, prayers of repentance. And we read where David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David knew what it was like to admit his sin, but then repent for his sin and to ask God to cleanse him from his sin. These are things that separated David from the other people, that how David could be a man after God's own heart because he repented 
and he acknowledged his sin. So now we get to 2 Samuel 7. Now we're going to get see where God's going to actually make a covenant with David. And as I said, we've talked about this a lot in the last series. But I want to read this passage in 2 Samuel 7, verse 1 through 17, to kind of frame what is this covenant that God is going to make with David before we close and participate in communion. So it says, When King David was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherd of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why don't you build me a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and I selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all of your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived in the earth and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they have, they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He will be the one who will build a house, a temple, for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything that the Lord had said to him in a vision. So that is the text where we see the covenant that God makes with David. It's a beautiful thing because the text, start where, uh, text starts with David saying, God has been so good to me that I want to in turn do something really good for God, so I'm going to build him a house. And what does God say in reply to David? No. You don't have to do anything for me. Instead, God extends a covenant and saying, I want to do even more for you. And we see in this beautiful covenant that God wants to give David a famous name, that God wants to give David a homeland, that he wants to give his descendants protection, that he wants to keep on protecting the nation of Israel, and that God wants David to, uh, that his descendant would bring Jesus Christ to this world. But also in the midst of this covenant, God talks about that he's going to bring correction to any of the kings. See, this is a unique covenant that God makes because on one hand, God says it's unconditional. That no matter what happens, sooner or later, I'll bring about a king through somebody. But in the midst of this text that we read, God says, I will bring correction. 
It's easy to miss that part of this covenant where God says, I want to bring correction. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to bring us correction. He wants us to understand when we're not going his way, not because he wants to make us feel bad, because he wants us to enjoy every part of the covenant that he has for us. It's God's grace that he would convict us of sin. It's the kindness of God that he would say, hey, you can't do that. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance because he wants us to have a better life than the life we're currently living. 